The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to FigPee's podcast series, FigPee Focus 45. FigPee is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FigPee global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FigPee business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICPI's webinar and podcast series, FICPI Focus 45. As you probably know, FICPI is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel. I'm a partner at Bereskin and Parr in Montreal, Canada. I'm a registered patent agent in Canada and the United States, and I work in the fields of quantum technology, AI, telecommunications, mechanical engineering, and information technology. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Brad Watts from Senator Tillis's office. Brad is responsible for planning and implementing Senator Tillis and the Republicans' legislative portfolio on all aspects of intellectual property law. Good morning, Brad, and welcome to our series. Morning. Thank you for having me um, and, and for inviting me to be here with you today. And I'm really looking forward to our dialogue and our conversation. Excellent. And this conversation builds also on the uh, session that was held in Cannes a few uh, weeks ago, where the senator appeared and gave some remarks, which is greatly appreciated. And we also had interventions from uh, uh, Judge Michelle, as well as Corey Salzberg, who uh, I understand you've been working with quite closely in this uh, in this effort. Um, good so, friends. And, and good friends. Excellent. Um, and so the topic today is this Section 101 reform um, and the the bill that was introduced by the senator um, late in the summer. And I guess one of the questions we have for you is, you know, when we look back at the history of, of Section 101 in the United States, which is the equivalent of you know, what is patentable subject matter in most other countries, wasn't it really meant as a threshold test originally? And does the current legislative effort recast Section 101 in that light? Right. I mean, so, you know, I can speak from my personal perspectives and from um, Tom Senator Tillis's perspectives, right? You know, I don't speak for anyone else, but I think the way, you know, Tom views it based on his understanding, and, you know, he has a background in research and technology and development, is that Section 101 is meant to be that kind of gatekeeper. Now, a gatekeeper is just like the name implies, right? It does filter some things out and keep some things from entering into the gate. But Section 101, at least in our view, is meant to be a very broad gatekeeper. Very few things are kept out at the threshold matter. 
um, that, but there are other parts of the Patent Act that are meant to weed them out in terms of their patentability as opposed to their eligibility. And so, yes, um, Louis-Pierre, you hit the nail on the head. This bill is really meant to restore Section 101 to its proper function of being a broad gatekeeper, keeping out things that we all, I think, agree should be kept out, you know, pure abstract ideas, mathematical formula, um, you know, things that exist wholly in nature, but allowing things that somehow have some element of technology or human inventiveness to come in that gate. Now, just because they're in there in the gate, right, doesn't mean they're going to pass into the castle foreground or make it into the keep. You know, there are other parts of the Patent Act that serve that function. But what Tom wanted to do was strike that right balance of having a broad gatekeeper so that we can encourage and incentivize innovation, particularly in emerging technologies, but still keep out all the things everyone conceptually agrees shouldn't be eligible for patent protection. Um, and this is driven, too, by one more thing, and it's the fact that our current jurisprudence has become unwieldy. You know, the senator has said this many times, right? The exceptions have swallowed the rules. Um, it's almost become like divination, particularly in the context of life sciences. That doesn't serve anyone well, whether it's practitioners, whether it's innovators, whether it's implementers. And so this is really meant to get at that problem, providing predictability and certainty. So that leads me to the other question, which is the timing of the presentation of the bill. And this is not the first time that Senator Tillis has, has proposed legislation to reform Section 101. So why now? Why do this late August 2022? Is there something that triggered that action? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so as you all well know, Senator Tillis really started championing eligibility reform in 2019. He was the then chairman of the IP subcommittee, held a series of hearings on this. I mean, three hearings over three days, 45 witnesses, um, and, you know, put forward a draft bill. Um, you know, that process stalled largely because there was a lack of stakeholder consensus. Um, now, Simultaneous to that process, as you all are well aware, the Supreme Court was considering whether to take up the American Axle case. Um, Senator Tillis, alongside his good friends, um, Judge Michelle um, and Dave Kapos, you know, filed an amicus brief in support of the Supreme Court taking up that case. The Solicitor General asked the Supreme Court to take up that case. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court chose not to take up that case. And in the senator's view, you know, that was probably the uh, quickest, most expedient way to hopefully provide some certainty in this area for the court to step in in that case and provide clarity on what exactly the contours and the rules of subject matter eligibility are. You know, the senator's view is if the court isn't going to take up, wasn't going to take up American Axel, there's probably not a case in the next three to five years that they're going to take up on eligibility. So uh, in his mind, then, you know, that then uh, led to the conclusion that, you know, we have to have a legislative fix. We need to lay out a piece of legislation, knowing that it's going to be a multi-year process to pass something, but that we can no longer just rely on the court to correct its own uh, jurisprudence and its own interpretation. Congress is going to have to legislate and probably statutorily override some of these tests. So just for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with the American Axel case, can you very briefly tell us what the what the issue was in, in that case? Right. I mean, the crux of the American Axel case, you know, really uh, turned around the issue of abstraction, right? I mean, what is an abstract um, concept for purposes of subject matter eligibility? I mean, and just getting down to the brass tacks of it, right, is you basically had a physical object in question that was somehow deemed to be abstract because of the 
uh, natural principles the invention relied upon and incorporated into the claim. I, that's my butchering of, I think, what the crux of the question was. Louis Pierre, you tell me if there's a better or more articulate way to summarize it. Sorry, no, no, I think, yeah, I think you're entirely right. It, it, and this is why so many eyebrows were raised when the American Axle decision came out, is because the claims did tie the control system to a, a physical piece of equipment. And and that's exactly right. I mean, that it, it highlights, you know, what I was saying earlier about exceptions following the rule. You had a actual physical object, right, that actually performed a function. And now there may have been other issues with that claim, um, but that probably involved issues of like uh, written description or enablement, um, maybe some issues of obviousness. At its core, the claim was found to have been an abstract idea. And I think for Tom, you know, it highlighted an, an absurdity, right? How is something that you can physically touch and feel and performs a function somehow an abstract idea? So, yes, that's the crux of it, give or take. That's an interesting comment that you've made regarding some of the other problems that might have been involved in the American Axel case. And, and some people have argued, or at least opined, that partly uh, the situation that we're in right now, or the situation in the United States, is that Section 112 was somehow rendered ineffective, or there was a failure to enforce Section 112. And, and if that's the case, then is, is the path that the senator has chosen the right path, or should there be another path to properly enforcing Section 112 to try to reduce the impact of a Section 101 inquiry? Right. I mean, so that's a good question. I'll, I'll say the two concepts, you know, eligibility reform and improvement of what I'd like to call patent examination processes are probably very much interconnected. I'm not a patent attorney. I'm not a patent practitioner. So everything I'm about to say is just based on my own research and understanding what I hear from other folks. You know, but my impression is when you're talking about some of the requirements of patentability, um, they are rigorously enforced for certain technology sectors. And I think pharmaceuticals are a great example, right? They're there's pretty rigorous and aggressive case law. Um, we have a case now that's going to be at the Supreme Court um, about, you know, requirements in kind of the biopharma sector for written description or enablement, you know, or obviousness, et cetera. I do not think that is necessarily the case for other technology sectors. I would say it's a bit of a mix, right? I think current patentability requirements are being enforced and enforced pretty rigorously and have pretty in-depth case law in certain technology sectors, but there are other sectors where it's not perhaps as rigorously enforced. So I think the key question is, if you're going to re-broaden eligibility to, I think, the original congressional intent to be a broad gatekeeper, how do you ensure that we have improved focus on requirements of patentability, meaning giving examiners more resources they need, um, giving them more time, um, making sure they have access to the appropriate technology. Um, you know, these are very small, low-hanging fruit, which is why in conjunction with the uh, Patent Eligibility Restoration Act, the Senator, the Senator actually introduced with Senator Leahy, you know, the Patent Examination and Quality Improvement Act, which focused on issues of patentability. They're, they're very much interconnected, even though they serve separate functions. Yeah, and that's what we see around the world, is that the, there is a, a, a deep interconnection between the legislative or, or statutory uh, obligations that are imposed on the patent office and the operation of the patent office and how the patent office implements those statutory obligations. And on the question of Section 101 or patentable subject matter, the USPTO has legitimately tried to provide guidance to applicants as to how to draft claims to eligible subject matter, um, which has been helpful. But this does not have seemed to have solved the problem. Why might that be? 
Well, I think there may be a number of factors, right? I mean, number one, first and foremost, I mean, is is you all know as practitioners, you know, the USPTO's guidance is not binding, right? It's not due any type of deference in court. Um, you know, USPTO doesn't have that type of authority. Um, so, you know, there's that as a threshold issue, right? I think the USPTO, particularly under um, Director Iancu and Director Vidal, they have done a really good job of trying to provide clarity uh, and, and, and to make sure the guidance is giving people something to focus on, to work with, and they should be commended for that. But at the end of the day, if the courts are not bound to defer to that guidance, um, it's a temporary, if, if, if that fix. Um, you know, I think part of the problem we have in, is also a function of our litigation system, right? I mean, I cannot tell you how many lawyers over the years who've talked to me who will candidly acknowledge, yes, I agree that this patent claim I'm trying to have invalidated isn't really an abstract idea or a law of nature or natural phenomena, but I can get it knocked out on a 12B6 motion and not have to do any discovery, not have to do a marksman hearing, or I can challenge it on a grounds of patentability and have to spend a year in litigation and pay X amount of dollars. And there are judges, too, who will, you know, candidly acknowledge that when they're trying to manage a massive docket that includes criminal cases, civil cases, social security appeals, and they have a patent case in front of them, do they want to dedicate a year and a year and a half of their docket to litigating the uh, patentability of a claim in front of them that is probably going to be found to uh, not be valid, or do they want to knock it out early and clear their docket? Um, you know, those are just functions, I think, of human nature, um, and they're not wrong. I mean, that is just the nature of an adversarial litigation system. But I think that's why, as we think about eligibility reform, we have to think about how do we not only make the examination process on patentability better and more rigorous, but also make it easier to litigate questions of patentability early on, right? So that we still have that same effective judicious use of the litigation system, but not because we're having untetherable rules about what may or may not be abstract, if that makes sense. Hopefully that's not too rambling. No, not at all. Thank you very much for that answer. I guess coming back a little bit to the issue of timing and the point that you made regarding lack of industry consensus back when this bill was previously introduced, there have been a number of recent federal circuit decisions in which the judges have specifically, if not begged, Congress to intervene in this 101 issue. There's there's clearly a split at the federal circuit level. The Supreme Court, by, by not accepting to hear the American Axel case, has essentially said, clean up your own mess, <laughs> where, where some people would say, well, it's the Supreme Court that created this in the first place. Does the fact that the judiciary by going on the record and saying, we need Congress to intervene in this, does that put the senator in a better position to try to obtain this industry consensus? I think so, right? I mean, but look, obtaining consensus is difficult because, you know, it requires trying to figure out everyone's legitimate equities. And I use that term for a reason, right? I mean, at a threshold matter, Senator Tillis has a philosophical belief, right, that the current eligibility jurisprudence isn't working and isn't incentivizing the right types of innovations we want to see in this country. Some folks may disagree with that. They may just say philosophically, no, we think it's working just fine. You can't bridge that gap, right? You have just a fundamental philosophical difference. That's very different from someone saying, hey, I still don't agree with you. I still don't think we need to do anything, but what you're thinking of doing is going to impact me negatively in this way. Those are what we like to deem legitimate equities. And so working through every industry's legitimate equities, and not just industry, civil society has a voice here. The public has a voice, you know, the private sector, um, you know, 
figuring out how to balance all of those equities to get a product that has a high degree of consensus takes a lot of time. Even with the court clamoring for clarity, it still takes a lot of time. And Lou Pierre, you and I were just talking about this before the webinar began, but I always encourage folks that taking a, a longer, slower, more thoughtful approach that builds a high degree of consensus is always better. Why? Because when legislation, especially in an area as complex as patent law, is finally enacted, if it has a high degree of consensus, it's probably going to be permanent or semi-permanent, right? As opposed to if it's something that is just done on a pure party line vote or is done on the barest of majorities and there's no national consensus around it, well, that could be changed by that same bare thin majority a couple of years later. And when we're talking about innovative and dynamic industries that have to plan out projects on five, 10, 15 year timelines, having certainty is always better. And so, you know, I always just remind folks, I know everyone is clamoring for eligibility reform now. I get it, Senator Tillis gets it. That's why he's dedicated so much time to this. Getting reform though, that is going to be long lasting and provide the certainty you want as a private sector will take time. Um, you know, because we have to work through legitimate equities and we have to find a solution that not only does no harm, but actually makes things better and is politically viable in the long term. And, and that, I think you've just made a very important point, which is that the reform has to do no harm. That, from a practical point of view, is a laudable goal. But people will sometimes find fault where there is no fault that needs to be found. And I guess that sort of leads me to, so who are the main supporters? We've heard Judge Michel and uh, former Director Capos, uh, they're very big supporters of this. Or what are the main groups that are supporting this initiative? And then on the flip side, who are the constituents or who are the, the players who are opposing this? Yeah, so I don't want to name specific even industries or companies, primarily because uh, if we're trying to get consensus with them, um, I imagine they won't like getting called out. But look, I think we all are sophisticated enough to know who kind of the where the dividing lines are. Right. I think if you're looking at certain technology sectors in the U.S., particularly in like precision medicine, diagnostics, life sciences, they've been the hardest hit by the current you know mess of jurisprudence. Right. Conversely. The software industry, for example, has probably benefited from the current jurisprudence. Why? Because there were probably a lot of low quality patents out there that negatively impacted them. And the current jurisprudence has actually helped clear some of those out. That's what I think makes doing you know, something in this area so difficult, right? Because Section 101 and the way the current jurisprudence work does not apply universally and equally to every technology sector. And so you see an acknowledgement of that in the senator's bill, right, where he makes pretty clear that there are some categorical exceptions of things just that per se, as, an, as a matter of national public policy, we're not going to allow to be eligible for patent protection unless they have some type of technicity requirement, some type of integration into a technological requirement. So I, I think it's important to think of it in that way, right, is, is realizing that, you know, the current jurisprudence doesn't impact everyone universally the same. Um, and trying to find a path forward that does no harm, meaning doesn't allow it, you know, the issuing or the doesn't allow for what we all think of as you know, low quality patents to be eligible, things that aren't true technological innovations, but that also protects and incentivizes new and emerging technologies. A bill the center put forward is his you know, first stab at trying to fix that. Um, I guess if I could wave a wand and fix it tomorrow, I'd probably be making a ton of money in the private sector. But uh, unfortunately, I can. Going back to the text of the legislative uh, proposal, is it significantly uh, the same as what was presented a few years ago, or between the two, 
periods, has there been some change in the text? Yeah, I mean, so look, it is, it's not identical um, to the 2019 proposal. I mean, I think there are similarities and overlaps with some fine distinctions. For example, the 2019 proposal had a proposed fix to Section 112 that wasn't included in this proposal. There was a lot of concern and opposition to attempting to do something around written description and enablement with a 101 fix. Um, that said, you know, this proposal also has a pretty fairly well articulated list of statutory exclusions and how the statutory exclusions have to have some type of human improvement and technological improvement to somehow get back in to potentially be eligible. So I would say, you know, conceptually, there's big overlap between the two proposals. I would like to think, though, that the 2022 um, proposal takes into account everything we heard about the 2019 proposal, takes into account the multiple years of feedback we received from stakeholders. And kind of like chiseling, you know, a, a sculpture further refines, you know, what was a base product. You know, Lou here too, I mean, the senator has been pretty clear in his interviews. Um, the proposal we introduced in August probably will not be the same as the proposal he introduces in the next Congress. Why? Because we're continuing to listen, get feedback from stakeholders and practitioners. And it's just a process of continual refinement, trying to address those legitimate equities, trying to address unintended consequences. Um, you know, this is going to be a you know, four to six year endeavor, and each version of this bill will continue to improve, continue to refine, continue to address concerns that we're hearing. Thank you very much for that. One of the criticisms that was leveled at the 2019 effort was that a fairly significant proportion of constituents did not participate in the hearings. What are the efforts? What are, how can you get that portion of the interested parties to come to the table and discuss this? I've heard that criticism and candidly, I think it's crap. Um, you know, it's crap. I mean, uh, if anyone wants to point me to any other set of congressional hearings in recent memories that dedicated three single hearings to one topic and had 45 witnesses across everything from private sector to academia to civil society to small inventors to startups to former administration officials to former judges, please be my guest, right? But I don't think there are any. Um, so I get that not every single person who wanted to have a seat at the table was able to be there. Um, that is just a function of time and candidly resources and scheduling. But I think three hearings with 45 witnesses is a pretty impressive, diverse, representative record to stand on. You know, I guess in a theoretical world, we could have had a fourth and fifth day of hearings and, you know, had 75 witnesses instead of 45. But I probably wouldn't have had a job at that point. Um, <laughs> You know, so I just I don't think that's fair. I think that's a stalking force, because on top of having 45 witnesses over three days, we have all throughout 2019. And then in the last three years, the center has continued to receive feedback. Anyone who wants to provide input can. They can give their thoughts. They can give their views. Um, the difference is just because you have a certain viewpoint does not necessarily mean, you know, that Senator Tillis or others are going to agree with it. So it's not a question of, I think, having a diverse and representative set of views. It just may be that as a matter of public policy, the view you're espousing may not be the view that Senator Tillis or others share. That doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make Senator Tillis wrong. Um, you know, but uh, just because you have a philosophical disagreement does not mean you're not being heard. And that's interesting because, the, you know, I think when it comes to patentable subject matter, at least what should be or shouldn't be patentable subject matter, is something that needs to be broad-based in its 
in its approval and its support of, of the initiatives. And, and you're right, fundamentally, people can have philosophical differences. Absolutely. And I think that's important to, to emphasize, right? I mean, there are, there are, you know, some some folks who don't like um, the senator's bill, not just because of what they believe are kind of the legitimate impacts it may have on their business model or industry, which, which is fine. We want to hear that. But they may just have a fundamental philosophical disagreement. That is OK. That doesn't make them wrong. It doesn't make Senator Tillis wrong. Um, there just may not be philosophically an ability to bridge that divide. And I think it's always important to keep that in mind. Um, just because you have a philosophical disagreement and just because the senator may be pursuing a path that you philosophically disagree with doesn't mean you're not being heard. Um, because one of the things I really love about working for Tom, you know, being a businessman, being a guy who is not a lawyer, but who came from like an R&D and a consulting background, he values that. He values engagement. He values making sure everyone who wants to be at the table can have their voice. He values trying to pinpoint, even with someone that may philosophically disagree with what he's wanting to do, trying to figure out, okay, is there a legitimate equity in there that I can try to address and fix? Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you're not able to do that with everyone. And so I always just try to remind folks, just because the outcome you want may not be the outcome the senator decides to pursue does not mean he's not listening, um, because he really values himself on soliciting feedback, hearing people out, and trying to, where he can, address their legitimate equities. And, that, and that's one of the things I love most about working for him is he's very good about that. That's the management business consultant background that comes out. So for, for the listeners and members of FICBI who have access to uh, eventually the recordings from the World Congress in Canada, I invite you to listen to Senator Tillis's remarks because they were exactly on, on that particular point, which is, you know, try to try to bring as many people around the table as possible, make sure everyone is heard and listened to, but at the end of the day, try to build a consensus that manages to rally people around something as opposed to divide them, which kind of leads me into another sort of tangential question. Um, senator Chatillis is, is Republican. You work for a Republican senator. Is there any truth to the statement that intellectual property rights don't really divide along party lines and they're sort of, they, they, they sort of cross over? A hundred percent, right? Intellectual property is one of the few areas um, still, I think, in our political system that are um, nonpartisan. Now, I use the term nonpartisan as opposed to bipartisan for a reason, because people split down and have differences, but it's not based on their party affiliation. You know, for example, Senator Tillis uh, is very closely aligned with his one of his best friends in the Senate, Senator Coons. Um, they share a philosophical view on intellectual property. They also represent states that have IP intensive industries. Um, same thing with Miss Hirono out of uh, Hawaii. Senator Tillis and her work hand in hand on IP issues. Why? Because philosophically they agree. Now they may have disagreements on other issues, but on IP, they have a philosophical shared belief. That's what makes working in this issue beautiful. But then there are senators who come from states who maybe don't have IP intensive industries, or they may themselves have their own philosophical view on intellectual property. Um, and that is fine. That's what makes working in this area fun is you will find folks who may not be partnering on any other issue teaming up to work on IP issues um, because views are very much based on philosophy, the states you represent, um, you know, personal experiences you've had in the patent system. And I think of someone like Congressman Massey in the House, you know, MIT trained physicist, I believe he has 20 something patents. You know, he's probably going to have a view of the IP system that's shaped by personal experience. And that's really beautiful, right? I mean, it's one of the few areas left where you will find strange bedfellows 
regardless of party affiliation. And so absolutely for the international viewers, just want to reinforce that point. It, it is one of the few areas in the U.S. that there is no clear Republican or Democratic um, you know, kind of divide. It's very much dependent on the individual member. And, and so that probably increases the chances of being able to get consensus at the Senate level and at the House level because it bridges party lines. And so you wouldn't necessarily have a breakdown along Democratic or, or Republican. But as I you think said, that's right. I, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at what Congress has done, the last few big intellectual property bills we have done, um, you know, the AIA, um, the Protecting Lawful Streaming Act in 2020, the Trademark Modernization Act, the CASE Act, um, you know, they've been done on pretty overwhelmingly, uh, you know, bipartisan votes. I mean, almost near unanimously. Um, and that's a testament to the fact that in something as consequential as intellectual property law, Congress tries to build national consensus. Why? Because I think most members understand, to the point I was making earlier, if you want to have an insist, a system that incentivizes certainty or that provides certainty, therefore it incentivizes investment, innovation, development, it has to be something that's going to last and not just change every few years. Um, now, that takes time. It's hard. But it's the beauty of IP is it's one of the areas in our country where there is, you know, uh, can be broad, overwhelming, uniform national consensus. As private practitioners uh, operating in this world of intellectual property, one of the things that we are often confronted with is the mythology that surrounds intellectual property and patents in particular. These ideas that are sometimes very deeply rooted in the psyche of, of people that are misrepresenting or, or, or clearly false with respect to what intellectual property actually means and how it's used. Do you or the senator have any thoughts on initiatives that could be undertaken to educate the public, to continue the conversation to, to understand that patents are beneficial uh, because they do, in fact, encourage innovation and not the other way around? You know, one of the things I always like to remind folks, um, you know, uh, and this is really me putting on a philosophical hat speaking for myself. So just being very clear. But I, one of the classes I teach in the summer, uh, I teach on the side is IP law. And one of the things I tell my students is, you know, patents are the ultimate anti-monopolistic tool. Because when you have a strong, valid patent that you can enforce and you're a small upstart who's trying to establish a market dominant actor, that is one of your only ways to force that market dominant actor not to bankrupt you, to steal your product, et cetera, right? It is very much an anti-monopolistic tool. It's very much something that helps small businesses. So I always like to remind folks that philosophically, that's why strong IP rights are important, particularly strong patent rights. Now, you know, the converse of that, right, is you also want to make sure that you know, a patent that, you know, is an exclusive limited monopoly for a certain amount of time, if it is strongly enforceable, that is also one of the highest quality, you know, meaning you don't want some of these business method patents, which in years past um, were probably too broad um, and were used to harass some, you know, legitimate small businesses. You also don't want those to be on the table. It's about finding that right balance between having uh, patents that are of appropriately high quality that represent true innovation that are also strongly enforceable because otherwise it's going to be very hard for small and medium enterprises to challenge market dominant actors. And I think that's a story um, that uh, the general public should hear. 
that policymakers should hear because, you know, it's very, very relevant, right? We live in a world where there is increasing concentration um, across a number of industries. IP represents one of the few ways to challenge market dominant actors. And, and we've all seen those those graphs showing the proportion of the value of a company that's represented by its tangible assets as opposed to its intangible assets. And the flip that has occurred in the past 40 or 50 years, where today the value of a company is, you know, in some cases, 90 percent. Uh, represented by the value of its intangible assets. In that sense, I think there's support to continue encouraging companies to invest in protecting those developments through the mechanisms that are provided by intellectual property laws and and patents in particular. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, look, I think incentivizing innovation and giving folks the tools, not just large companies, right, but your small inventors, the tools they need to have a monetizable asset is important, right? You know, how many inventions do we know of that came out of the blue because some small inventor or independent inventor took the time, the money, the effort to really innovate in an area that maybe a more established competitor didn't want to because they had a successful business model? You know, that's the beauty of the innovation ecosystem, right? And making sure we have an ecosystem that has this strong, predictable, reliable intellectual property rights that incentivizes that type of innovation is critical. And, you know, bring it all back to 101. That's why the senator is so interested in it, because it's a threshold question. If you can't even at the threshold decide if what you're trying to invent is going to be eligible for patent protection, you may just decide to forego, you know, that entire investment, that entire development. And I think back to 2019, Judge Michelle who's a good friend of mine, has been a good friend to Senator Tillis, you know, he was one of our witnesses and he made the comment that if I, as a former chief judge of the federal circuit, can't deem whether something is going to be eligible or not, how can we expect a private enterprise to invest billions of dollars to try to bring a new technology to market? And that is very poignant. We want to make sure, at least at the foundational level, people know with certainty that if they go down this path, it will at least be eligible for protection. Maybe it's not patentable, but at least it's eligible. So speaking philosophically, again, when we look back at the history of software development in particular, um, software development started way back when, when computers or access to computers was extremely expensive and it was limited, and it was traditionally the purview of universities and governments. At the time, and we're talking 50, 60 years ago, at the times, there was then a legitimate desire to share the work, to share the best practices, to share the code, to try to optimize the operation of the machines. And that, I think, probably set up this open collaboration movement that infuses the IT field and the software community today. A few decades later today, Computers are ubiquitous, they're cheap, and software development then has transformed itself into being uh, the result of legitimate and dedicated R&D efforts. And, And so for the opponents to fixing, if you want, the 101 problem, what do you respond to to those people by saying, well, you know, this effort should be protectable by a patent as long as it meets all of the other criteria of the act, but we shouldn't outright dismiss patent applications on the basis of this development because it's software. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to use my guest privileges to reserve the right to um, evade answering most of that, because I think it's a very complex issue 
honestly, and I don't want to say something off the cuff. All I will say right is that is what makes addressing 101 so hard because there are a lot of complexities there, not just within the software industry, but with every technology sector, as you all know, right? Things are combining and, and merging together. You know, a hundred years ago, right? Technology was pretty easily siloed. Um, you know, or even 50 years ago, right? You had, oh, you had life sciences and you had software and you had manufacturing and you had, you know, uh, agricultural innovation, you know, whatever, right? Siloed kind of technology sectors. As we all know, technology is not siloed anymore. You know, precision medicine incorporates elements of not only traditional life sciences, but software, potentially artificial intelligence. You know, you have, um, you know, uh, genetics crossing over with uh, traditional biopharma. You have manufacturing and software crossing over, right? And and so I'm always hesitant to just say, oh, there's a technology-specific opposition to reform or to weigh in and say, oh, well, this technology sector's concerns are overblown or valid because they've all merged. And that merger, I think, is only going to continue. And that really is what makes addressing 101 in a way that does no harm so hard because the lines are no longer clear-cut. Um, and being thoughtful about that and future-proofing whatever Congress does statutorily so that we're not disincentivizing, you know, the further merger and innovation in these technology sectors is critical. And the future-proofing to me is, I think, one of the most important things. I know it is for Senator Tillis, right? If it's going to take us five to 10 years to pass a 101 reform bill, whatever we do has to be forward-looking because the likelihood it will get changed again is almost non-existent. And what we don't want to do is purposely zone out technological innovation in certain sectors. And that includes software and artificial intelligence and life sciences. And striking that balance is incredibly difficult. Again, if I could do it already, I'd probably be making a ton of money. <laughs> um, you've come out and, and said a few times that this is a long time. It's a long effort. The goal line is probably not yet in sight. You've, you've talked about four to six years. You've just said five to 10. So this is, this is an effort and initiative that's going to span multiple election cycles, most likely. How hopeful are you that you will get this to a goal line and get this passed? Look, I, you know, I think Senator Tillis is very optimistic, right? We will eventually get something done. That is going to take time, though. It's going to take a lot of time. I mean, we've, he's already spent the last four years on it, just to get to a bill being introduced. You then factor in building additional consensus, co-sponsors, people who have concerns. Um, but I think there's a broad enough agreement, even, for example, from some of those who are opposed to reforming uh, eligible subject matter, they will acknowledge, well, the current jurisprudence may work for my industry, but I understand how for this industry it isn't working. So I think if you're talking about a concentric circle of folks um, who are reasonable, there is at least conceptually an understanding that at least as it applies uniformly, Section 101 isn't working for everyone. The question is how to fix it in a way so that it does work for everyone. Um, those are two very different questions, and the latter one is very difficult to answer. The legislation does propose a list of limited exceptions to patentable subject matter. And Judge Michel, when he addressed the Congress in Cannes, talked about the difference between judge-made law and statutory law. Does the fact that you're proposing a limited list of, of exclusions preclude judicial interpretation on those exclusions, the potential risk that the courts might denature 
or broaden those exclusions? Look, it's it's always possible, right? I mean, and this is a great philosophical debate that's gone on about whether we should reform 101 is if we did, could the Supreme Court just come in and interpret its current jurisprudence as being constitutional as opposed to statutory requirements? That's very possible. Um, and there's no way to future proof that, right? Um, you know, my hope would be that if a future court saw a 101 reform bill come out of Congress, that is you know, a pretty clear rebuke of their current jurisprudence, they would be much more hesitant just from a prudential perspective to come back in and try to reset things to the, you know, status quo. There's no way to prevent that. You know, we have three co-equal branches of government in the United States. They're independent from each other. The court has legitimate judicial review functions and statutory interpretation and constitutional interpretation functions. So yes, it is, it is possible, but, but my, Hope is that prudentially, if a reform bill passed, you know, the court may say, you know, as a matter of national public policy, we're not going to constitutionalize um, our previous jurisprudence because the legislature, the elected branch of government, the one that is politically accountable, has put forward a national consensus um, on what they think eligible subject matter should be. And that also begs the question. So as as you've uh, observed, there's a long line of cases, both at the a federal circuit level and at the Supreme Court level. Does the passage of the act, if and when it does, and depending on the form that it does, does that have the effect of rendering those decisions moot or abrogated? Or do they still live yeah. beyond the passage of the act? The center has often said, right, the goal is not necessarily to abrogate the outcome of specific cases. You know, no one wants to go back, for example, to the type of, you know, gene patenting we saw, you know, with breast cancer, right? We don't want to abrogate the outcome. What we want to do is have a clear set of rules to lead to the outcome, right? Because again, the way he conceptualizes it is that the exceptions, i.e. these judicial exceptions, have now swallowed the rules. It's not that there shouldn't be exceptions to patent eligible subject matter. It's that those exceptions should be narrow contained and clearly defined um, so that people can make, you know, threshold decisions about whether they want to pursue a potential patent on a product. And that's really the goal, right, is to cabin the exceptions into a manageable framework um, so that the threshold eligibility question can be determined and then the patentability requirements can be kicked in to address, you know, the broader issues of, you know, scope or written description, enablement, prior art, et cetera. To prevent 101 basically from doing all the functions that the rest of the patent act should be doing. That's a that's a brilliant way to to end this. And uh, you know we're coming up on on our limit of time, and I wanted to thank you again for participating. If there was one thing you would want to tell our listeners, practitioners in private practice, what is a call to action that we can do, or that we could support, or that we could help in one way to ensure that this does go through? Maybe not yeah. in the form that it is now, but that it eventually goes through so that we can have better certainty. Well, I think there's a number of things. First and foremost, whether you're based in the U.S. or, you know, internationally, wherever, you know, be sure to engage in the process. Right. You know, uh, your local legislature or your um you know, if you're in a foreign country, but you represent a company in the U.S. that's having an eligibility issue, you know, whatever is the appropriate form of engagement for you with policymakers, be sure to do that, right? Um, particularly if you represent companies in the United States, make sure those companies engage with their elected representatives and their senators. Um, that is critical. 
um, to tell their stories, number one. Number two, and I think this is an issue anyone can get into, but particularly in IP law, I see this a lot, is I always encourage people not to fall in the trap of demonizing folks just because they may be opposed to 101 reform or demonizing them because they want a purer form of 101 reform than what Senator Tillis has put out, right? Everyone needs to feel like they have a voice at the table and everyone needs to be heard. You know, what we should be doing as a community is listening to all those voices, pulling out where there is commonality and agreement and trying to forge that consensus. Even someone who has a philosophical disagreement with Senator Tillis on what he may want to do on eligibility reform, I always try to listen and hear and ask myself, is there a way to somehow, even if it's only in a very small way, try to address their concern? And maybe maybe there isn't. Maybe there's nothing I can do to address that. But every voice deserves to be heard. And we as a community should be trying to find the commonalities to thread together so that we can get a consensus product. Those two things are critical. Brad Watts, thank you very, very much for your time today. This was a most informative discussion. And I, I know I thank you and I applaud your efforts to, to address this thorny issue. Um, and hopefully we will see some reform, hopefully sooner rather than later. But I think we all understand that it does take time. And it, it if you want something that's going to be durable and, uh, and future-proof as much as something can be future-proof, um, then you need to build, build consensus, and, and that does take time. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you for thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here with all of you, and I'm always happy to chat with any of you one on one. And um, please always reach out to Senator Tillis's office if you want to talk or have questions. He's a great guy to chat with and a great guy to work for, and uh, I'm grateful that he's focused on this issue. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, and see you next time. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.